Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another episode of SFP Now here on Sci-Fi Pulse Radio. I'd like to welcome once more onto the breach, my friend, uh, John Walsh, um, who's um, you know who we spoke to last time in August about um, his Ray Harryhausen book and Flash Garden book. But this time we're talking about um, a, a brilliant new book that's um, recently just dropped. It dropped in September. But it's been like it's been like gold dust to get, even for people like myself that, that pre-ordered it in September. Um, Escape from New York: The Story of the Film. Hello, Ian. It's good to good to be back. Always good to chat to you and the folks here at Sci-Fi Pulse. Uh, thank you for welcoming me into the domain. It's great having you, and um, I hope I didn't. Um, for that uh, book title, although I do have it behind me here. It says official, so Escape from New York, the official story of the film. There you go, because officially licensed, first time in 40 years, an officially licensed making of book for John Carpenter's 1981 classic by little old me, little old me, John Walsh. And, you know, it's, it's a fantastic film and it's, it's obviously it's a fantastic book, even though I've only really gotten through, I've gone through the first few bits of it and I've just gotten up to the casting. Uh, but um, it, it, I, I have been scanning through it and, you know, back and forth, you know, you don't always read these books in sequential order. You sometimes end up sort of like going to certain chapters if you wanted to know certain stuff. Well, I think if people are kind of really into special effects like I am, they might go straight to the effects page and so on. But uh, when I wrote it, I kind of wrote it in a sort of a production order. So kind of the origin story first, who was cast, why they were cast, pre-production, the shoot, post-production, the release and legacy. So I try and keep all of my books um, in that kind of order because a lot of people do like to, to take a run and jump at it and read it a bit at night in bed. Although I've had some young people, Ian, contact me, and I think we're old enough now, we can call everyone else young people, to say, oh, I read your book in one sitting. And I was like, it took me the best part of a year to write, and you read it in one sitting, which I'm not sure if that's a great compliment or if it's someone sort of binging on a, on a feast. Well, to be honest, I could read it in one sitting, but... Um... I don't want to. I kind of want to savour it. And, and, and I'm saying I've still not read your Flash Garden book all the way through. I'm kind of like halfway, I'm kind of like halfway through that one. Um, I only completed reading your Ray Harryhausen book uh, probably around about September time. because I was, I, I was anxious because the Escape from New York one was coming out and thought, oh, well, I better, better get this read. So, you know. <laughs> So I, I, I've not really been reading one sitting. I, I kind of like to save the experience because it's sort of like a, I think I think the, the information stays in my head better that way as well. No, I'm like that. So with with magazines and and books by my bed, I'll, I'll read a piece or even uh, CD sleeve notes because they come now with little booklets attached. If you buy soundtracks from Intrada or Quartet or La La Land Records, they have these wonderful little inlay booklets. And sometimes it takes me a few days to get through those because I'll read a few pages at a time. Um, but so some, as you say, Ian, if you read it more slowly, you can you can take it in. You can enjoy the meal more if you chew a hundred times per bite. So I think that's what we'll say. That could be a quote for the front cover of the book. <laughs> that, that's actually a ring. <laughs> um, so um, how how did the book come about? How you know what what, what was it made you want to do Escape from New York? Well, um, after Flash Gordon um, was a big success following the 40 years of the film, when it came out last uh, December 1980, the film came out, and my book came out December 2020, so exactly 40 years on. I was speaking to the folks down at Tyson Books about possibly a next book, and we were looking up which anniversaries were coming up. And of course, there's the books I want to write, there's the books they want me to write, and then the, the licenses that are available. So when you kind of filter that all down, you get things like Escape from New York. So the rights were available through Studio Canal, who I already had a relationship with for um, Flash Gordon. 
And that's the key thing, Ian, because anyone could write a making of book, of course, and interview people who worked on the film. But getting to use artworks, HD screen grabs, stills from the film, um, this wouldn't really be possible. You couldn't publish those and put them in a book. Some people do. um, There are some sort of self-authored books and some smaller publishers who will put a few pictures in without clearing them. That's normally fine. But for something that's a large coffee table art book that's glossy throughout, you'd you'd never get away with it. Um, So we kind of spoke at length at Tyson about new books. Everyone agreed that they wanted me to do Escape from New York. And I just sort of got on with it. And it is one of those films that I've followed since, I mean, I was too young to see in cinema at the time, but I had the VHS and then I had the VHS widescreen then the DVD, then the Blu-ray, then the 4K. And I think it's a good example of the film's longevity if it can be released in multiple formats and there's still a market for it. And, you know, every person I said to when they said, what's your new book? When's it announced? And I said, oh, it's announced. It's Escape from New York. I haven't met anyone who said they didn't know the film. Plenty of people who said, oh, I haven't seen it in years. Everyone knew it. So it's really trying to find those films that you can converse into making of books that will sell. Because as you said, you nearly didn't get a copy of my book, even though you'd pre-ordered it. It sold much faster than the publisher was expecting. And to be fair, even than I was expecting, because it's one of those films that's sort of, it did okay at the box office at the time, but it's had an enormous following online and through the internet and through VHS play and Comic-Con and so on. So people are very interested in finding out more about it, getting the story together in one official place. And so, yeah, it, it, it kind of sold out on day one in most places and it was quickly replenished because Tyson Books could see the pre-sales I think back in March, April time. So they knew that the more supply was needed. I think it's sold out again in Amazon.com, which is the US version of Amazon. So it's only available through secondary sellers there. And you might think, well, that's what difference does it make? It's Amazon, it's Amazon. No, because if Amazon is selling it and dispatching it themselves, it's at the retail price and often reduced by a good 20%. Because Amazon are great like that with books. But if you are a seller working inside Amazon, then you can set your own price. And we've seen that, haven't we, Ian, with Doctor Who box sets, which I saw the original Tom Baker um, collection that came out. What season was that with robots? Was that season 12? Um, And that was like um, 700, 800 pounds once on Amazon from a secondary seller. And I was like, (gasps) anyway, I saw the price for Escape from New York jump up and down at Christmas time. But I think it's leveling off again, but it's satisfying. I think it's satisfying. But to answer to your question, it really came off the last book. Well, it's still up there, the, uh, the price um, on, on Doc 2 Season 12. And, I'm, on, you know, especially when you can go on eBay, it's still up there in £400, £500 region. And I've been contemplating selling my copy. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would do that because obviously it's connectable and it's having the first edition sort of thing. That, that, song, that, that, that makes it sort of special. Um, but yeah, the, it's a great book, The Escape from New York. You know, so like, um, you know, I, I, I got fond memories, probably much like yourself, of watching, you know, John Carpenter films on 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 VHS videotape uh, during the eighties uh, when all that was going on. And uh, I think I think you know, Escape from New York is probably my favourite, and I think the second favourite is probably The Fog. Oh. Um, you know, from, from from you know from his batch of films, so he, he is a director that I've actually sort of like followed. But what, from reading your book, one one of the amazing things to learn is that you know the, the origins of the story came from um, shortly after what after the Watergate scandal. You know, the the the, the idea was developed in the wake of the uh, of the Nixon um, of the of the president of, of the outing of President Nixon and stuff like that. And you know, that was really fascinating to learn. Yeah. So you know, we think about President Nixon. What happened for, for folk who don't know about the president in the. Uh... Nixon was the president for two terms. In his second term, uh, there was some trouble. And uh, it wasn't um, it wasn't as bad as Bill Clinton. Um, and it wasn't as easygoing as having a cake in Downing Street. What happened was um, Richard Nixon was covering up a burglary he didn't know about to the opposing parties, the Democratic Party, um, who had a break-in at their offices that were based in the Watergate Hotel. And this is where we get the phrase Watergate from now to, as a, sh- a shorthand for scandal. And so at the time, it shocked the world and America because... It's the youngest and sort of most vibrant of the democracies. They think they, they invented democracy. Of course, it's not the Greeks, um, but the Americans always like to think they've invented democracy. So, of course, when it all fell apart and Nixon had to go, um, it shocked America to the core in the sense that at the very top of power, there could be corruption. When we think of the way that America was formed and how they got rid of the British monarchy because they wanted to be in charge, they wanted transparency, and they wanted something that was 
uncorruptible by having a rotating president every four years. Um, was it every five years? I always forget that. But uh, so, so Nixon's whole trouble started because he recorded everything. He recorded all of his conversations. So, of course, for years afterwards, these were transcribed bit by bit and things were released. And, of course, he was, he was quite foul-mouthed and so on. But in later years, he, he did sort of redeem himself as, a, as an ambassador um, in America. And I think it was um, Democratic President Bill Clinton who brought him back into the fold and had him working on foreign policy. So he did achieve a lot in his time. But, of course, it's marred by this. Um, by this impeachment. But um, he resigned, of course, before he was impeached, in case people want to ring up and try and cancel me and hashtag John Walsh cancel because he got his politics wrong. So um, John Carpenter saw that and saw an idea of doing something about a corrupt president. So Donald Pleasance is based more on Richard Nixon than any other president. And the idea that a president is corrupt now is, is, is pretty much hand in glove with drama because we all think, yeah, that's fine. At the time, of course, it was a bit shocking. By 1981, the country was still reeling, really, from Watergate. So to see Donald Pleasance, an Englishman, playing a kind of a corrupt American was, uh, was really quite effective. But I must say, Ian, if Donald Pleasance was standing for office now, I'd probably vote for him because I like him and he's not that bad. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think um, I think I would as well, given 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 the uh, the, the horse and pony show that we've got going on at the moment. You know, in the, in, in the UK with, with Partygate. <laughs> and and think of American presidents of recent times and and the president at the moment. You know, people might think, oh, Donald Pleasance. When Pleasance was asked to play the part, he was anxious, even though he played Doctor Loomis in Halloween, to play a very American role of the American president. John Carpenter was keen to have him, but Pleasance was concerned that it might not work on screen. And he kind of created his own backstory, nothing intended to be on screen as such. But he, he imagined that he was probably the child because it's set in the future. He was the, uh, the illegitimate child of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And, and, and I don't know how that would legitimise him as a candidate, but that's how in his own mind he justified it to himself. And uh, of course, he's superb. You know, we remember Donald Pleasance from, you know, as Blofeld in um, You Only Live Twice, the James Bond film with Sean Connery. There's so many memorable appearances. Roger in The Great Escape. Absolutely, you know. And uh, and it, one of my favourite performances in the underrated 1979 Dracula, directed by John Badham, where he's in there with Sir Laurence Olivier. Great movie. I think people are rediscovering that in recent years. Brilliant actor and great anecdotes in there. So even for actors who are no longer with us, like Donald Pleasance, Harry Dean Stanton and uh, Lee Van Cleef. People who did speak to me from the cast gave me great stories. Adrian Barbeau told me great things about Donald Pleasance. I won't spoil it for you, Ian, if you haven't got there yet, but um, he was a great joker on set. So it is, it is, um, it's fascinating how something in America's past, like Watergate, could be woven into a story about uh, effectively penal reform. Because in 1981, when the film came out, there were more men incarcerated in America than at any time in its history. So there was a comment also, not just about corruption in politics, but about whether um, institutions like prisons really work, or are they effectively factories for creating our criminals for tomorrow? And that's a great debate that often goes on here, of course, when young people go in for something minor that come out then fully to do something major. There's also, also lots of psychological experiments going on with students uh, playing prisoners and guards. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think they did a film about it, you know, where, where this group of students on, you know, for a university study, uh, they, they simulated the conditions of a prison and it got to a point where the guard became sort of like uh, power hungry and, and crooked. And, and, and the prisoners, um, you know, began to sort of like, uh, the people that will be in the prisoners began to sort of like feel and pick up pick up the traits of actual prisoners. Yeah, that happens, know? doesn't it? Yeah, people get kind of institutionalised into whichever role they play. And when they do it vice versa, you see it in Big Brother, when they used to do little tasks where one week they'd be masters and then the other week servants and they'd swap them around. So those little social experiments are, um, are fun to watch. Yeah, Big Brother wouldn't work on me. I'd just go, sod this. You know, I'd, just, I'd just be the, the complete rebellious one. You know, putting feet up and lighting a cigarette. <laughs> oh, well, as the producer of the show, if I was the producer on Big Brother, they wouldn't be able to afford me, of course. Um, I would punish everyone in the house because of Ian's behaviour. So I would, you would be peer pressured into doing what we in the control booth would want you to do. So um, it would make interesting television. I'd just do a cup of Boris Johnson and um, just save in my psychosis and just not care. Oh, poor old Boris. And all he wanted was a slice of cake. Oh, no. Happy birthday. <laughs> oh, dear me. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting how, how, how it came out of it. Something. It actually makes me wonder, 
you know, what on earth film producers and and uh, and storytellers are going to come up with based on based on the politics of the last few years and and what's happening now? Well, in Escape from LA, of course, the 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 president in that's even even more corrupt and 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 more difficult to handle. At the time, though, you mentioned about the fog. Uh, John Carpenter had made the fog for Avco Embassy, which was one of the larger independent film companies. And it was Bob Remy, who was the head of Avco Embassy, said to John Carpenter, look, come and do another film for us here after The Fog was a success. We have one lined up. It's the Philadelphia Experiment, the time travel film. And uh, John Carpenter said no to that. He would have been a great fit because John is that definitely his genre. He said, I've got another film idea. It's in the back of my car. I've been driving around with it for a while. It's called Escape from New York. And it really happened as simply as that. It was a very light pitch meeting effectively and uh bob read it liked it and they they got it underway and uh, nick castle came on board mm-hmm. who's the writer director we know him as the director of the last starfighter and oh. uh and of course he was the shape in the original halloween he was the very tall michael myers um i spoke to nick about that and he injected of course some humor into escape from new york so there's various lines in the film that are attributed to him um, because I think it needed something to take it away from that very austere, we're in prison, there's a, a timer in your neck and you're going to die. There needs to be some levity. And he was very good at injecting some of that in. But um, no, I think there's an interesting parallel between what's happening now and what, what we might see in future years. But um, it is interesting when we look back with our 2022 eyes on the future of 1997 and a film from 1981 that's... Uh, Things got a, a. People would argue things got a lot worse in politics. You know, things became even more corrupt and uh, even less accessible for people who don't have money. You know, one of the things the Americans like to, to bang on about is anyone can be president. Well, anyone can be president if they've got half a billion dollars in their back pocket, either from friends and influencers or from somewhere, so that they can get their face on um, on TV and be recognised. And it's one of the reasons Donald Trump was successful was because people already knew that face. Whether they liked him or not, it's if someone said Donald Trump was standing for president, people knew who that was. And I think a lot of people now for the next election are going to be thinking if they've got name recognition, whether they could stand because you're halfway there. You spend most of that half a billion dollars on getting people to recognize who you are. That's why Hollywood makes remakes so many old films, um, because a remake of Lady and the Tramp. If you've seen the original, you'll see this Clash of the Titans. If you've seen that, you'll see this. Um, it's 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 an easy way of getting people to understand what it is you've done. A remake of Howard the Duck is yet to uh, yet to occur, but I've got my fingers crossed. Mm, yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, you know, so like uh, most underrated George Lucas film ever, um, most criticised and hated George Lucas film ever. You know, the, the, these people just don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're missing. <laughs> no, they don't. It's had a recent 4K remaster. I mean, we're not here to talk about Howard the Duck, but I will say I agree with you. Phil Tippett, there's some wonderful animation in that picture. And John Barry's score was recently reissued by Intrada Records on a triple CD release. And I drank that all up. It was uh, it was wonderful stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about John Carpenter, I mean, he, he did such a, such a you know, Brilliant job on Escape from New York and and Escape from NA. I, I liked Escape from NA just as much. I mean, I, I liked the ending better of Escape from NA because it seemed to it seemed to have a lot more impact uh, for me than, than 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 him destroying the tape at the end of Escape from New York. Um, so you know, it's almost a shame that they couldn't have done that. You know, at the end of Escape from New York, what they did in Escape from NA at the end. I suppose you know they were thinking about what could they repeat, what could they do better if they ever got a chance to remake or revisit. It's a shame. In a way, Escape from LA had much more money, but um, it was less successful. And, you know, I talk about this a lot, and I I know John doesn't mind me mentioning, but after Escape from New York, really, and that was after a series of very successful films, we had Dark Star, there was Halloween, there was The Fog, there were some films he'd worked on, not as a director as well, we'd written scripts for. There was his television special about Elvis, which got a cinema release in Europe, enormously successful in terms of ratings, very accomplished film, Starring a, uh, a young Kurt Russell as the lead, as the uh, as the king of rock and roll. But after Escape from New York, there was arguably no real bona fide hits again, and the only successful films, both critically and financially combined, were um, Christine, which did okay but not great business, and Starman, which again did okay but not great business. Everything else lost money theatrically and had bad reviews. 
And people always pick me up on this, say, what about the thing in Big Trouble in Little China? Yes, there were critical and financial failures at that time. We don't think of them as that, as that now, but well, that's they how they were. They, they did well on video when they were released on, in some sort of VHS home, home video market. But that money never, the, the problem with video is that filmmakers and studios don't really recover that money. So if you're a local news agent in the early 80s and you've bought lots of films, you may have paid up to 60 or 70 pounds for that cassette. But a lot of that money, most of it never goes back to the studio. So the rental market was its own little economy. And so even those studios, I mean, we don't have to have a whip round for them or do a GoFundMe page, but there, there isn't a direct correlation. If you'd spent £2.50 renting the thing or if from a local video shop, or if you went to the cinema and spent £2.50 watching it, as in an afternoon matinee, more of that £2.50 goes to the studio at the cinema than it would from the video rental. So for years, people who were making money from videos were the video distributors. Often they weren't the film companies. And local retailers and, and your local shop, he was making plenty, don't you worry. Mm, no. Uh, <laughs> I, used to, I used to work at the local off license, which had a sideline in renting videos. So. Well, I hope you got to see free ones and, and got to see stuff. I remember waiting for Superman 3 for weeks and weeks because it was always out. It was always out. Well, I, got, I got to see plenty of stuff before it was before action came out. Things haven't changed. You're the same now, Ian. You get to see stuff before all of us. So you've continued as you started. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the things I really liked about the book, and I like this about the Flash Garden book and also the Harryhausen book, is, is it's the connections between the various people. Um, for example, you know, on, on, on Escape from New York, you know, we have various filmmakers in their own right working working on that film in various different departments. You've already mentioned Nick Castle, who who, who co-wrote the film with with John Carpenter. Um, but we also have James Cameron doing the um, do, doing the matte paintings um, for the for the backdrop of, of various scenes as well. Um, so that 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 always fascinates me. The, the, these people that have gone on to become filmmakers or, or do something in their own right, which stood out, and you know, especially James. James Cameron, because I'm I'm also aware that he did the um, he actually designed the spaceships for uh, you know for Roger Corman's um, Battle Beyond the Stars. Battle Beyond the Stars. Yeah, it's directly because of that he ended up on Escape from New York. So Roger Corman um, at New World uh, Pictures set up a special effects shop of his own to create Battle Beyond the Stars. Great film. I'd love to do the making of book for that. Keep saying it to people, and they're like, "We'd love you to do it." And I'm like, "Well, let's do it." You know, and I'm I mean publishers. I speak to publishers, and they're like, "We'd like you to do that." So. <laughs> When they were looking for an effects house to do the effects for Escape from New York, the only place they could afford was was Roger Corman's um, New World Pictures. And it really, it's just as well because the effects work they did was wonderful. It really was a high point. There's, there's a full story about the people who did Star Wars and what happened there and John Dykstra. It's all in the book. Um, but it really was a happy coincidence that uh, James Cameron, who had worked on Battle Beyond the Stars, was held over for this project and... Uh, and got to work with John Carpenter. And of course, he went on to have a fabulous career. We, we know him for the Terminator films one and two, Aliens, um, Avatar, Avatar, True Lies, which is a really great Arnie film that I think people don't really remember as well as they do the Terminator films. Great. Arnie's take on James Bond and Titanic, of course, Avatar and Avatar 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. He's doing a bunch of them together. We've been doing a bunch of them together for about 15 years. <laughs> it just feels like it. So I think the... I think the first one came out 2008, so nearly 12, 13 years. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. People get very excited when there's a new James Cameron film. I was very lucky to be involved in a commercial he had for um, Rolex there. Um, was it about a year and a half ago? Uh, he used part of my student film as Ray Harryhausen for a Rolex commercial he was doing. I think it's called The Mariner. And uh, I think it's on my um, YouTube channel. You can see the uh, uh, the commercial. So my film school short was used and it was projected up in James Cameron. And he's watching it like that. And then they're advertising his new watch. I didn't get a watch, but uh, the Harryhausen Foundation got a very um, very generous donation, which, uh, which is I, very useful. I first learned about James Cameron's involvement in Battle Beyond the Stars uh, thanks to an interview I did with uh, with an actor um, you know called Philip Granger. Um, and Philip Granger, hearing in his acting career, he was good. He was always he was, he was good friends. He was a lifelong friend of Bill Patsman, and both oh. him and Bill Patsman worked um, a summer at New World Studios on, under um, you know under. Roger Carmen, um, you know, just doing doing our jobs and things, um, and um, you know, he, he told me he told me about James Cameron and you know the amazing work he was doing with these spaceships, and you know, and that that's that's how I learned about that. So. Yeah, no, it's incredible. You know, back in those days, 
magazines didn't broadly talk about who was working on the stuff and how. You know, a lot of magazines, when I look back now at magazines from 40 years ago, they're, they're kind of extended um, press releases. Very little information who the personnel are and who's working on what. So you have to become a bit of a detective to find out who's working on, on what. I know that people will say, hang on, we know James Cameron worked on that film. I know people know that now. But I'm saying just the other details around all of these film books. It's, it's not easily found because there's not, there isn't another making of film book you can open up to see what happens. You know, I'm, when I'm writing these, I'm writing them partly because nobody has written them before. You know, if you think of Star Wars and Harry Potter and all those big movie franchises, the Marvel films, they have, they have so many books. I mean, there's cooking books and crocheting books. I mean, knit your own robots from Star Wars and all these things. Whereas Escape from New York and Flash Gordon haven't had any making of books. Um, let alone Snake Pliskin's Thanksgiving cookery book. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's great in a way because you're going into an unspoiled territory and, and there's kind of no real competition. But also the pressure is on because people will wonder if there hasn't been a book before, maybe it's because no one wants a book now. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think, you know, I think, I think a lot of the time the, the market's so flooded and saturated with stuff that, you know, you know the, the, the people with the money to make things happen um, can be quite short-sighted about how popular um, a film actually was. I mean, I'd love to see a book about the making of Highlander, you know, the original Highlander film and, and the subsequent series and how, how the series spun off from the film. You know, given that that film trilogy, the original Highlander, well, the original Highlander film trilogy is such a mess with its continuity and story. Um, it'd be interesting to see a film, you know, see a book for that, but I, but I can't see it happening because I don't think Highlander is quite, quite has the cult following and the quite, quite the interest that something like Escape from New York Right. And it's a big risk for a publisher because if they were to take on something, a title that people remember but don't necessarily love, not saying that's the case with Highlander, but often you don't know until you release a book and no one buys it. Oh, we shouldn't have done that. Uh, but it's too late because you've created the book. It's a bit like making a film. You know, I've done films for cinema. I've done lots of TV series as well. You really don't know until you show it whether there's interest in it. And then sometimes I'm very surprised at how there is still interest in stuff I did maybe 10, 20 years ago. So it's um, and streaming services. I have two films now on Prime Video at Monarch, which was about the death of Henry VIII, which I shot back in 1996 when I was 12, obviously. And, and uh, um, it's the only, only film of yours that I've not watched. Oh, have you seen Tory Boy the movie? I have, yeah. And it's, it's, it's even more relevant now than it was when you made it back in 2010. I know, who'd have thought? You know, my apologies in advance for the, uh, the sweary language. That was me, I'm afraid. I wasn't drinking. Um, but um, that's on Prime Video as well. Yeah, so a lot of people have been watching that and coming back to me and say, oh, you should do it again. And I'm thinking, well, I'm quite tempted with all this birthday cake flying about because I'm quite a cake person. So um, possibly, possibly we'll see, you know, if if, um, if I'm not doing too many more books, then, uh, then perhaps. I mean, it's, um, I mean that, that, that looked to me like some proper graft story by the movie because, you know, he wasn't just making documentary, he was actually actively campaigning as well, running surgeries and, 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 and all of that. So. Yeah, so I kind of fully took on the mantle of the candidate and, as you say, rightly, held surgeries and so on. And I was up there for the um, best part of a year doing it. But I kind of thought if I was going to do it properly, I want to see what's really like. And uh, I, I, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it yet, but have a look and see what you think. Um, we had um, different Q&As for the film when it came out in 2011 for cinema. And then it went back in cinemas in 2015 when there was another general election. And Picture House Cinemas did a deal with me where if I went to screenings and did a Q&A afterwards, then they would give me a bigger share of the box office. And being the producer I am, I was like, yes, I like the idea of cutting out the distributor. So we did that. And when the film, I think it was on its first run back in 2011, and we beat John Carter from Mars in its opening week. And people might think, well, you could easily beat that. But it was a big multi-million dollar blockbuster from Walt Disney, a science fiction film. And they had people stood. Very underrated film. Very underrated, very Flash Gordon-ish. And so that was in the screen next to mine. And they had 12 people in it. And my screen, which had, I think, 250 seats, was completely packed. And even I thought, why aren't you in John Carpenter from Mars? That's where I'd be. And yet the Q&As at the end of Tory Boy, the movie, were very, very lively. Um, there was scuffles. There was, there was, the police were never called to any of the Q&As, but it did get um, very hairy and very leery very quickly because people were very upset by the film. So if you watch the film with a group of your friends, 
and say nothing until the end and then discuss, I'm pretty much guaranteed that you'll all be fall, falling out before the night's over because it's a film that really divides people. It, my motivations divide people. The outcome divides people. What they've seen on screen, what happened afterwards. On Prime Video, we have a little bit of an extra called Tory Boy The Aftermath. So after the end titles go up, you can actually see what happened kind of immediately afterwards because there was quite the to-do. Um, and, and it kind of, you could keep making an aftermath update for that film every every year because you say, Ian, you know, things, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, you know, things have, have got, in some people's eyes, much worse. But um, I actually got a handwritten note from Boris Johnson asking me to stand again. And this was just before he became prime minister. So <laughs> I'm not sure why, but Sam, there you go. It's nice to be popular, nice to be liked. I'll take that. Even though I'm guessing you probably voted for Remain. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing because all of the TV shows I've made when I work for BBC and other broadcasters, you have to have an air of impartiality about what you're doing. And so when I made Tory Boy, I had Roger James work with me, who was a former uh, documentary filmmaker and controller of ITV. And he made sure that um, it came across as genuine as possible so that I wasn't doing a, a, a rose tinted view of me. People get to see warts and all. And it is there's a lot of warts. Mm hmm. I mean, you know, the way I saw it, you know, when you when you setting out to do it at the beginning, you was, you was going on about the state of the Labour Party at the time. And it was a shambles, you know, um, Gordon Brown's leadership, you know, um, perhaps he saved us um, with the in, in 2008, you know, with, the, with, with, with his economic policy, you know, hindsight being what it is now. But um, generally his leadership um, around uh, meant a great deal, many more, many other issues wasn't that great. And, and, and the party was losing, it, it was losing popularity it was you know and I, I just the previous year i'd made a documentary at downing street with gordon brown and uh it's all in tory boy the movie so people want to see more of that gordon brown they're thinking oh no that's that's a hundred years ago well it's not that long ago um but have a trip down memory lane watch tory boy the movie on prime video and uh and and leave a lovely comment if you like it and if you don't like it don't leave any comment thank you if you, if you look at what's happening now gordon brown's actually practically a saint in comparison to what's gone on now <laughs> well look we were saying about donald pleasance as the president weren't we that now we would probably vote for him and, and getting things back to to escape from new york i meant to say earlier had I been making Escape from New York, because people often do this sort of armchair critic thing and uh, fantasy football manager, um, I would love to have had a pre-title sequence with Donald Pleasance in the White House about to board Air Force One, where we find out a bit more about him. Because I was very excited to see Donald Pleasance and very disappointed that we didn't get more of him. Every time he's on screen, he lights it up. And I would love to have known a bit more. And there is a deleted scene, of course, the, the bank robbery scene, which puts Snake Plissken in prison. And we talk about that in the book. We have exclusive pictures and whatnot. But um, no, I think if 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 I had given John Carpenter any notes, although I would have been, um, it, would it have been joined up writing? It might not have been because of, I was too young. But if I'd given him a note in block capitals back in the day, it would have said, I'd, I'd have more of the presence in the opening because he's terrific. You know, you can't have too much Donald Pleasance. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's very underused, very underutilised in, in the film. And we, we don't get to know very much about him. But I think, um, so in, in as a result of that, that final scene that he has with Snake, you know, when Snake goes off and, and rips a tape out and leaves him with a fake tape, um, it's, it's not quite as impactful as it would have been had we learned more about Donald Pleasance's president at the beginning of the film now. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's always a pressure with these things. You know, um, Alfred Hitchcock used to talk about the MacGuffin, you know, the, the plot device that everything hangs around, but it's just really a device to get people to move from A to B. Um, so the, I suppose the tape is the MacGuffin, you know, the tape for the Hartford Summit. <clears throat> but unfortunately, I think Donald Pleasance became part of that MacGuffin himself. You know, he became just a device. As, um, as we say, you know, every time he's on screen, we're suddenly thinking, oh, the president. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can watch Donald Pleasance all day in pretty much, you know, any any role. You know, I could actually watch him just sat there doing nothing. Yeah, such a great actor, you know, and 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 it's made so many movies. You know, he's just uh, an absolute machine. As was the other great actors in the film. You know, one of the reasons that Pleasance was hired, so was Ernest Borgnine and um, Harry Dean Stanton and Lee Van Cleef, was because. The studio allowed John Carpenter to cast his choice, and it was only his choice for Snake Plissken. That's not who the studio had in mind. They had someone else in mind. Charles, uh, hmm? Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson, that's right. So Charles Bronson was in mind because he was a big star from Death Wish. You know, he carried a lot of box office clout at the time. He would have been a good fit, actually. You could see him 
kind of grizzled and going in reluctantly to get the president. And he would have been great. It would have been a different sort of performance. It still would have been a great film. And I think there still would be a love for that film 40 years on. And that's not to take anything away from Kurt and his performance. But it was a big risk to go Kurt Russell because he played romantic leads before, very handsome face. So hard to imagine him being transported into that world. And of course, he had another acting life when he was much younger as a child star in Walt Disney films. Well, he was shoes and uh, yeah. everyone's strongest boy in the world. That's he? right. So if we think of Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone and how successful he was, you know, Kurt Russell had a similar career in lots of films as and, and at a slightly older age, an older child. So he was well associated with that. So for him to go from that more or less to this via Elvis and used cars, the comedy, it's, it's quite a quite a stretch. But I mean, the same thing happened with Bruce Willis. He was not the first choice for um, Die Hard. A lot of other actors who the studio wanted first, including Ryan O'Neill and um, and Richard Gere, both of whom turned it down. Now, what Ryan O'Neill was thinking turning that down? What was he busy doing? Um, but Bruce Willis was available. That was one of the reasons why he was cast. And yet he's brilliant in that film. He made it very much his own. So unexpected castings can uh, can sometimes give unexpected results. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have liked to have seen what, what, what Charles Bronson would have done with it. Um, you know, you know, thinking about that. But, you know, that, that's that's probably the strongest, one of the strongest parts about Escape from New York is the casting. I mean, you know, as you say, you know, Kurt Russell, you know, was a risk, but he nailed it. And, um, you know, I think part of the reason he nailed it was, was 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 the strength of the supporting cast around him. I mean, you know, he got the likes of Ernest Borgnine, you know, bringing bringing character actor. You know, he's so like um, I can't remember the name of the film. He won an Oscar for it. Where he made Marty, 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 yes. Was he a butcher? He was a butcher, wasn't he? That's right. Yeah. Of course, we remember him from the Poseidon Adventure and the Black Hole. I love the Black Hole. Um, yeah, I mean, to surround Kurt with all these veteran actors, and of course, Adrian Barbeau, who was married to John at the time, she was brilliant in the film. And of course, she was young. She was telling me she felt um, really honoured to be in the film because John had written it with her in mind. So, of course, she'd just come off of The Fog, um, where she played um, the DJ, where effectively sort of a narrator as well of The Fog. And to go straight from that to to, um, Escape from New York. And she's brilliant as Maggie. And uh, she was very enthusiastic about um, the story she told. She told me stuff about Isaac Hayes and about Donald Pleasance. And it's all all in the book, all in the big book. I should say to people as well... um, I should say to people that there's there's going to be available, not many left now, these bookmarks or book plates. I sent one to you, Ian. I'm, I'm not sure if you've received it yet. Um, nothing's come through yet, but I've not really checked the mail today. Um, so these were produced by the publisher with the licensor's approval. So they're really limited edition. And what effectively they are, they're a sticker that you can place in the book that I sign. And it's official Escape from New York um, official story of the film book plate and they've only printed 100 so wow. either they think I'm not that popular or they want to make it very exclusive and I'm down to the last handful I've got like a pinch here left in the office so if anyone has got one of these the easiest way to get it and the only way to get it is to send me a screenshot of your Amazon review and your name and address and I'll uh, I'll sign it and send it to you free of charge and so it's all right for me to tell people how to contact me, Ian, yeah? Yeah, go for it. So if you want to contact me via Twitter, it's at Walsh Bros. That's all one word, W-A-L-S-H-B-R-O-S. On Instagram, John Walsh Filmmaker. On um, Facebook, Escape from New York, the official story of the film. has got its own Facebook page. You'll find me, Google John Walsh Filmmaker, and you'll find my lovely face um, splattered across Google like a, like a criminal. And uh, you can always find a way to contact me and I'll send you one of those for free. So just send me your Amazon review. But guess what? If you send a bad Amazon review, do you think you'll get one? I don't think so. So um, these will be vetted by my team who will look, look for the best reviews. Of course they will. Oh, don't, send, don't send an average Amazon review either. That's not going to help. It's not going to help. And once we have your name and address, that's we'll know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send one of Jeff Bezos's dr- drones around to get you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for those drones to come out. I'm waiting for the Amazon parcel to be delivered by drone. Well, would you be prepared to risk Skynet so that you could get your package by Amazon drone? Oh, it might make my life a bit more exciting. Well, I would agree with that. And if any of the robots or any of the artificial intelligences are listening now, I never tick those boxes. I'm not a robot. I'd love to be a robot. So they're coming to get people who tick that box. I'm not a robot. Um, in years to come, there's going to be trials over that. And so I just want to go on the record. I never tick that box. I'm not a robot. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, you know, sort of like um, at one one of the last censuses, I I basically said that I was Jedi. There you go. There you go. Yeah. That's. One of those people. The robots are kind of going to come for you as well. <laughs> well, I think I'll be in in some kind of bunker with Jeff Bezos signing book plates, and uh, and the Skynet thing will happen for real. Probably people will think it's a real version of Squid Game or something, and it won't. It'll just be like Skynet, but for real. Yeah, I mean, you know, get, getting back on to, onto onto the book, um, you know, it's one thing that amazes me. I mean, everything's done now with CGI, and yet, you know, we, we've already talked about this a little bit um, in in that back in. Back in the day, in the in the 80s, even even before the 80s, about the 30s and 40s, in order to extend the scene out or or, um, or, or a piece of a uh, piece of landscape, they'd, they'd use matte paintings. And uh, you know, one one of the things in the book I'm looking forward to reading is 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 a whole chapter. You know, you 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 devote to that. I'm just wondering, is it is, is there maybe any spiomas you can maybe like? Oh, plenty. Look, I am when it comes to special effects, the books I write tend to be like divided right down the middle, half of it special effects. So I break it down into optical effects, rotoscope, animation, matte paintings. Um, There's all sorts of different effects. So people often kind of bundle them into special effects or visual effects, but there are so many different aspects to it. So the matte paintings were fascinating for Escape from New York. And uh, John Carpenter worked on the Central Park painting, uh, but he didn't work on all of them. Uh, Somebody else worked on the the matte paintings of the, the opening of the film. And uh, uh, Coleman, her name was Coleman. Gosh, I can't remember her full name now. I'm, I'm two books in, so have a, have a look and see what her name is. See who gets there first. Oh, this, this is going to be fun. Competition. Um, is there an index at the beginning? Um, I'm going to get there first because I've got the electronic book on me here. So uh, Jenna, Col- Jenna Holman, my apologies for calling her Coleman. Jenna Holman was basically the first woman that we know worked in matte paintings and done a brilliant job on Escape from New York and went on to work from Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, The Day After, um, and even Flight of the Navigator. So her work is really splendid. And I'm delighted that I can actually give tribute to her in the book, because it's one of the reasons for writing these books. You want to make sure that people kind of get recognised. People know Albert Whitlock as being the kind of the the guy who did matte paintings, or, or Ray Harryhausen as the guy who did stop motion. Absolutely, they were pretty much the top of their field, but lots of other people were doing stop motion, matte paintings, and so on. So, and also there's a thing called hanging miniatures as well. And Emilio Ruiz, who is a Spanish special effects artist, he did a similar thing to matte paintings in that he created the illusion on set or on location, but created these little miniatures that would hang in front of the camera and close to the camera and would extend the sets or extend the cityscape um, behind the sort of the vistas. So that sort of thing is fascinating. And we break down all of the special effects shots, so there's no stone left unturned. So if you've ever watched a magician and thought, oh, how did they do that? Well, we pull back that curtain and look at every single aspect, including the computer graphics in the film, how it was done without computers. It's all there, you know. So there's lots of pictures people will have seen before, but not at this quality, this very high definition quality. And there's lots of pictures they won't have seen. And, and certainly when you get to the posters, there's stuff there from Drew Struzan's archive that Drew's given me access to that have never been published before. And so, you know, there's there's it's all in there. I mean, there's, I don't think there's anything that I didn't get that I wanted that I couldn't find. So I'm, I'm pleased about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually an amazing, it's an amazing book. I mean, the, you know, another thing that, uh, that that fascinated me was the amount of women uh, that were in, in the early parts of their career on Escaping from New York that went on to sort of like produce and and, and direct films films themselves. I mean, there's one particular lady you mentioned that worked with John Carter. I can't remember her name. Oh, Deborah Hill. She's Deborah Hill. She sadly passed away um, a while back. Mm. Years back, you know, you you mentioned her, but you know, and, and these were the women that really paved the way for, for the many sort of female directors and producers we've got now. And, well, absolutely, you know, you know and a lot of the photography in the book is by Kim Goldseb Walker. Uh, Kim was basically the first female unit stills photographer on motion pictures. And they had to get the kind of the local legislation change because they're very unionized shop state to state in America. And so to get Kim working on the picture because she'd worked on John's other films, um, they, they had to kind of uh, have, it, have a, f- a fight off effectively with the unions, a uh, kind of a legal fight off. And, and, and that was sorted. So the, the story of that is in the book as well. So it's very much a story of the time. So I didn't want to do a kind of a surface making of where you speak to the stars, have a quick chat with the director and fill it out with pictures. It, it needs to be more of a documentary than that. 
And I think I said this before to you, and that's like one of those true crime podcasts. You know, I'm going back and I often refer back to people and say, look, you told me this a few weeks ago. May I ask you now to reconsider because I've interviewed Dean Cundy or I see from John Carpenter this or Kurt Russell that. And sometimes actors don't have the best recall only because um, they work on so many projects. Mm -hmm. Filmmakers, if they've worked on 10 or 15 films in their lifetime, that's, that's very good. Whereas Donald Pleasance has appeared in nearly 200 films. So, you know, it's a bit like asking somebody 20 years ago when you went to Sainsbury's, do you remember what was on the cover of the cornflakes you bought? And it's like, you know, for most people, they do the job, they forget the job. Filmmakers are slightly different because they're with it longer and it's it's much more their baby. But um, no, I've often had to go back and ask people to to, to, to think again and, and present them with new facts and, and try and get them to agree them. Because ultimately, it's the official story of the film. It's been licensed by Studio Canal. It's published by Tyson Books. And they're relying on me to make sure that there are no glaring mistakes or errors. Errors. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping there aren't too many. And it's like you say, there's that Chinese whispers sort of thing that goes on where the actors tell a story at a convention and, you know, it gets handed down through the fandom and random sort of may maybe embellishes certain points, but doesn't embellish other points. And the story gets changed, you know. I mean, that, that an interesting case in point was your Flash Gordon book with the uh, with the Sam Jones, you know, story of him falling out with uh, Dino Dingarentes and 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 how that story had um, sort of like become legendary throughout the fandom. But the, the, the fandom story differs so much from the actual from, from actually what happened. It does. I mean, I spoke to um, lots of people on the picture. I spoke to, of course, Mike Hodges, who wrote the forward for me as well. And, you know, I spoke to Sam Jones and, and the thing is there are, there are slightly different recollections of what happened. And I think people's own memories will sometimes curl the edges or soften the impact. When your story is never challenged, it kind of becomes your own truth. So over the years, Sam's version of what went wrong on Flash for him became his version. And, and no one really challenged him over the years because they had no reason to. And then, um, you know, with the documentary that came out, Life After Flash, and then my book that came out then after that, it gave him chance to reflect. Um, Dino sadly wasn't with us when I made the Flash Gordon book, but his um, his wife Martha De Laurentiis was able to fill in a lot of the blanks for me. And so it's it is interesting. Actors are more guilty of embellishing their um, their history um, for better or ill than uh, than filmmakers. I think filmmakers tend to be quite pragmatic and practical types, whereas actors tend to be um, more in touch with their emotions and less in touch with the facts, shall we say. Uh, but I think, you know, Sam is very happy with the book and uh, he said as such. And and Brian Blessed really loves the book. I mean, I did a big long interview with Brian that's on my uh, YouTube channel. Um, in fact, I've done a YouTube playlist for each book, Harry Howes and Flash Gordon and Escape from New York. There were so many interviews and chats with people if you go onto my YouTube channel, you'll find all of those because it's more than you could write in a book. You know, what's that saying on Jaws? We need a bigger boat. I need a bigger book. Yeah, you know what? I actually watched some of the uh, Escape from New York stuff on the YouTube channel in, in preparation for this. Um, you know, and um, is is one well as Flash Garden. I mean, it's like it's just so so much. I mean, um, you, you cannot. It's it's a shame almost that you can't actually make the book into into a doc in, into a full blown documentary. Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a Flash Garden documentary called Life After Flash which kind of focused on Sam Jones and his kind of experiences. But, you know, I could do a 20-part book where one part was just one aspect of the film. You know, as thick as the book was, a 200-page Flash Gordon book, I could quite easily have done like 20 volumes of that um, with all of the information and all of the images that I found. I think, you know, one of the problems with books, particularly self-published books, some people want to do a making of a film and they think every piece of information they find needs to go in. Whereas for books like these, which have to be on sale at Barnes and Noble and other places all around the world, you have to do the best job of telling the story of how something happened without feeling it needs to be encyclopedic and have absolutely everything in there because it's not Wikipedia. You know, there, there is a difference between writing a book about something and being a Wikipedia article. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of tricky getting that balance. Not everyone kind of agrees with that. But then I wrote the book, so what can yeah, you do? I'm always, I'm always telling one of our writers on on, on sci-fi books uh, not to swear by anything that's written on Wikipedia because more often not anything related to a TV show or a film is written by fans and it may not be yeah. coming from the most reliable source. But, you know, to be fair to Wikipedia, you, you've got citations on there, so you, you, need, you need to check citations to see whether someone, if they're claiming it's the fifth most successful film of all time, check the little citation note to see if it connects to somewhere that's an official, reliable, third-party source 
um, there's Wikipedia stuff about, I think there's a Wikipedia page for my book. Um, so, and the other books and TV shows. So I'm kind of, I'm aware of the Wikipedia environment and, uh, there's a lot of good work that the editors do there. So, um, I need to be careful not to say too much. I don't want my Wikipedias being, uh, kind of eaten away. Well, I could imagine it's actually gotten better over the years, but, you know, I think um, a while back it did, uh, did have a bit of a wobbly, you know, wobbly start, as it were, you know, in t- terms of the information that was on there. Yeah, I think kind of people have taken hold and taken ownership of sections of it now, and it's kind of, it's quite reliable. You know, I know a lot of journalists that go there first, so if there's a, a news story breaking about someone, um, particularly if it's an obituary, someone will go to Wikipedia first, have a quick look and see what, um, what the basic facts are. But, um, you know, a, a making of book needs to be a bit more than that. It needs to bring a bit of zhuzh as well. So um, it can't be too dry. So I'm hoping that uh, the experience you've had of reading it was well, people have people have very kindly said that they want to watch the film again now that they've read the book because it's given them a new perspective. I watched the film again a couple of nights ago. And last night I watched um, Big Trouble in Little China. Great film. I love that. Such a different energy and such a great movie. It's um, a great big studio picture. John's last big studio picture. It actually feels like uh, it's, it's, it's a westernised film, obviously, with the characters and the archetypes sort of thing. But in terms of the actions and, and the stunts, it feels more like like a Hong Kong action movie of that period, um, you know, which is actually quite amazing to see. Yeah, it's not something that American audiences kind of plugged in. They thought it was going to be like Indiana Jones because that's how it was advertised. So Romancing the Stone had done well. Indiana Jones had, was on its second picture. And then this is 1985, isn't it? The year after. I don't know if Jewel and the Nile had come out by then. But anywho, it, that's what Fox thought they were selling. It was like Romancing the Stone slash Indiana Jones, but with Kurt Russell and John Carpenter. And, and it, it felt kind of flat with audiences and critics at the time. But, um, no, you know, people, as you say, find these films. It's such a small window, the theatrical window. And before video came along, once your film had come and gone, the only other avenue for it was television. And so, you know, if it hadn't been successful in the cinema, then it wouldn't have been given a great slot on TV either. So films were really forgotten before VHS. So VHS really is responsible for, it's responsible for me becoming a filmmaker. You know, when I was at school, films my parents would rent for me, I'd watch over and over and over. Um, So that became like my own little film school. And then between the school library and the local library, I'd read books on filmmaking. So I think if you're keen enough to find things, you will. And hopefully these making of books now will add to people's interests. So filmmaking hasn't changed really that much. It's switched from photochemical to digital, but actually it's become more complex. So the special effects now, if you were to remake Escape from New York, would have vast armies of people working on them. So as much as technology has democratised the process that anyone can make a film on their phone, very few people have, um, it's actually made it more expensive, more complex. So instead of reducing manpower, it's increased manpower. So back in the 80s when people were saying, oh, they'll be making films on computers by the year 2000. Well, they are, but with more people involved. So I think that's always the element that we forget when we think about the future. I actually uh, had a bit of a joke with a friend the other day. Uh, my friend doesn't, he's, he's notoriously bad for remembering the name of actors because he's not really a film fan. He's just a, a work colleague, uh, you know, from, from, from my, my other sort of like adventures. And uh, I actually joked, well, you know, sort of like in about 20, 20 years time, we're going to get digitised actors instead of real actors. And when we digitised actors, you're going to get Jimmy Cagney returning. <laughs> Um, yeah. You're going to get, you know, Humphrey Bogart returning, you know, and, and they'll, they'll have entire new careers due to the, their digitised image. Oh, yeah. You know, there's, there's talks about that already in Hollywood, about IP rights and digital rights for bringing people back. Some people have come back, haven't they, in, in films and in, in, in kind of very brief scenes and sequences. And um, there's been commercials, haven't there, that have brought people back. I think Elvis brought back in a commercial. Elvis, of course, was brought back in the... Uh, the Blade Runner sequel, which um, was spectacular, wasn't he, when he was doing that Las Vegas show? I know it wasn't bringing him back in quite the same way, but um, it was great to see him in that and uh, and hear his music. So, um, yeah, I think there'll be definitely an audience for that. I, th- I think one of the problems, though, Ian, will be this. The cost of bringing back, say, Cary Grant, Humphrey Bogart, will there be an audience for that? Because a uh, few people our age kind of even remember who they are, and certainly people younger than us will be like, Cary Grant, what's, what does that mean? Mm. Um, is that something I apply for to get money off? Um, they, they won't know. Um, and why should they? You know, people won't know who Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd or maybe Charlie Chaplin are either. So if you were to spend hundreds of millions bringing Charlie Chaplin back to life in a new film, you could release it theatrically and maybe find that there isn't much of an audience for it. 
oh, oh, you could release it, you know, direct to streaming and, and it picks up an audience all the time. I mean, that'd probably be the best way to do it. Most, I mean, streamers are going to hate me for saying this and don't cancel me on Prime Video, please. Most content on streaming services lose money. Yeah. yeah I've said it. I've said it. They won't cancel me. They don't know who I am. But um, most content does lose money. So it's a fraction of the subscription that pays. So if you take Netflix as the example, the only income Netflix has are from the people who pay to subscribe to watch Netflix. Whereas if you look at the business model for a TV channel, they would have um, advertising streams of revenue that have sponsorship and so on attached to programs. Of course, there's commercial breaks and everything. And they sell their programs so when Lost, that drama series about people lost on an island, was sold, it was sold all around the world. And the Simpsons television show was, was sold all around the world. The minute you put it on a single streaming service that can be viewed everywhere around the world, you've reduced the value of that content massively. And I know this from doing my own content creation for the last 30 years. All of my TV shows were worth much more in secondary sales to broadcasters in other countries than they were as uh, being on streaming services. And there's a, a vast amount of content now that's being restored in 2K and 4K for streaming services. That excites me. Um, so we might get to see like the Flash Gordon cinema serials nicely restored. That that would excite me. Um, but for big new films that are coming out, that is tough because you're almost certainly going to lose money. Streaming services are fighting a decreasing amount of subscribers. A bit like, um, look at my book. If you've bought my book, you're not going to buy it twice. Why would you? You might buy it for a friend. But once you've bought something, you've bought it. Once you've bought the greatest hits or the Star Wars box set, you've bought it. You're not going to rebuy it. And for streaming services, they need customers to keep coming back. Well, they're not. They're there already. They've paid their £5, £6. Um, Apple have just allowed their, in October last year, allowed their service to be available on non-Apple devices, which is great. So I have a, I have a ginormous Samsung TV. And I can now watch Apple Plus TV on that, which is great. I watched The Morning Show, which is fabulous. Um, such a good series. She, she's she's um, the girl from Friends in that. Uh, Jennifer Aniston is superb. It's the best thing she's ever done. She's excellent. Um, so what I like on Apple is the, uh, it's the one about the program from skewed from the point of view of uh, what would have happened if the Russians got to the moon first. All right, what's that called? Um, I can't remember the name name of it, name of the show off the top of my head, but it's a really good show. I'll have to check that out. You know, people like Apple and Amazon can afford to run filmmaking at a loss. Um, the British film industry knew how to do that for a long time, <laughs> particularly in the 80s. So, you know, it's almost impossible to make money from something theatrically. And then when it goes to TV and video and so on, it's, it's really, really hard. So big films that have a decent budget, anything sort of over $100 million, if they're funded by a streaming service and, and basically premiere on a streaming service, they're really not going to make their uh, money back. And so that's a business model that needs um, consolidating in years to come. So there needs to be less streaming services or lower budget, con lower budget content because there's only the same amount of people on the planet and there's only the same amount of subscribers who are willing to subscribe. And people will follow content before they'll follow services. So people would sign up for any old streaming service if it had what they wanted to see. So people aren't necessarily loyal to Netflix or Prime Video and Disney Plus and so on. It's about what content they have. I think Disney Plus's case, they're unique because they have the unique Disney library, which is um, which is absolute gold dust, isn't it? Mm. And all the, the Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett. And uh, I'm waiting for Jar Jar Binks. How old will we be? And Jar Jar Binks gets a spin-off series when they've exhausted it. Hopefully, a few thousand years old by then, because you know I don't want to. I certainly don't want to see it that now. Um, hopefully, by the time I reach a thousand years old, I'm too senile to care. The series will be called "Exqueeze Me," <laughs> the book of um, the book of Jar Jar Binks. Exqueeze me. Now, to just make it edgy and just call it Binks. Yeah, Binks. Yeah, make it very Tarantino-like. Just be called. Yeah, that's a good idea. We might. We should pitch that to Kathleen Kennedy and. Uh, and see what she says. She'll probably accept it. She'll probably go for it, I reckon. I reckon, you know. The, 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 anything that says Star Wars on it these days, there's going to be a new um, Obi-Wan Kenobi series after Ewan McGregor said he'd never come back. Um, what, unless they offered him a series? Mm. He's back. Yeah, it's a one-off series. I don't think we're going to make another one. I think it's just going to be a one-off. They say that until they see whether it lands well or not. And if it doesn't land well, they'll say, well, it was always going to be a one-off. In television, nothing's ever a one-off. It's always sausages that you feed to a hungry dog. And you always find out if you're going to get a second series at the end of your first. 
And I, I've yet to meet anyone who has genuinely said, oh, no, just a one-off series, John. You know, we, we didn't expect to get a series two. Yeah. There's a lot of tears and tantrums when people don't get a second series. It's a really interesting, fascinating and fickle world in, in a lot of ways. Well, it's constantly moving sands. You know, the, the thing with television is that nothing stands still. And even though from the outside people see the names, the brands and on-screen presentation, behind the scenes, it's quite quite tumultuous. You know, the, the, it's, it's a constant sea of change. And you either sail that sea and survive it or, or you get kind of churned out. So people really aren't, um, people who like television don't necessarily want to work in television. And people who work in television sometimes don't like watching TV. So you, you need to find people who like TV, watch TV and want to make TV. So it's, um, they're the people who, who tend to sort of survive it longer. Well, well John, um, just got um, one more question for you, Ring. Is, um, you know, you've got, you mentioned, Ring, you've got another book coming out, which you can't talk about, but you, you, you'll announce in March. But I'm just wondering if there's any plans to, uh, you know, once, once all this COVID nonsense sifts aside and it becomes, becomes an endemic, which will be, which will be a dream world. Um, do you have any plans of doing a book tour? Yeah, I mean, there was going to be plans for a screening and a book signing for Flash Gordon. That, of course, didn't happen because of lockdown. We were going to do the same for Escape from New York. It didn't happen. That's why we come up with these lovely book plates. I've got two books coming out this year, in fact, and one in September and one in November. So um, yes is the answer. We The, the plan is, to, yes, to do um, signings, screenings, and a bit of a book tour for both. I was meant to be at Comic-Con San Diego again, and uh, I couldn't go again. So it's if things all things being well, then I'll be back at Comic-Con San Diego, and you can come and see me give a talk, maybe get a free book or a book plate. Or even a bookmark. We gave bookmarks out for Harry House and the Lost Movies, and uh, that seemed to go down well. You know, you know, I'd love to do com- com- Comic Con in San Diego, but it's such a financial, you know, burden to, to do it. It's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive getting there, and then when you are there, it's it's kind of expensive. But um, what's that that shampoo advert? You know, I'm worth it. Whey. <laughs> Well, you know, when when I win when I win that Euro Millions, I, I'll be at Comic Con every year, mate. <laughs> Well, look, if you win the Euro Millions, you could fly the plane like John Travolta from Heathrow all the way there. I'm sure they'd let you do that. I'm sure they let millionaires do that all the time. You wouldn't want me doing that with my hand-eye coordination, mate. <laughs> it's all computers. Let the com- Just press autopilot. I've seen that film Airplane with Leslie Nielsen. You just press the thing and the guy inflates. It's fine. <laughs> okay, I trust you. <laughs> Um, do you have any, um, you know, obviously with lockdown, it's probably curtailed your film career quite quite considerably, which is why you've had so much time to write these books, um, I guess. Um, do you have any films planned, any, any, any ideas that you, you, you can talk about or, or things coming up? Um, well, I've been speaking to a lot of people, even a couple of streaming services very kindly, who, who notice me from the books. And, and now that I have two things on Amazon Prime, I've been speaking to the folks down at Prime Studios. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots kind of being talked about. And I think it's the, un- the absolute uncertainty that people are unsure about um, whether they can commission things beyond development scripts and, and go into pre-production fully. There are dramas being made, but there is a big backlog of, of production. And of course, in the same way, if you're trying to get a plumber or an electrician to come to your house to do a repair, the film industry relies on lots of technical folk and they're not always available all at the same time. And so there's there's a great shortage of personnel and a great kind of demand for new content. So um, so the answer, the kind of yes, kind of politician's answer is yes, but we can't talk about it. Is there any is there any film or series that you'd love to make or love to be involved with? You know, just just throw out a few 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 franchises. Oh, <laughs> I'd I'd um, well yeah. I, I can say this. I'm going to get shot for saying this. Um, there is possibly talk of a Flash Gordon television series, and uh, there is talk of an Escape from New York television series as well. So um, both of those would lend themselves nicely. Flash, of course, is a serialised drama strip anyway. And, and I think Escape from New York would really work as a streaming series drama because people always talk about putting it back in the cinema and remaking it. But actually, if we stop and think about the premise of successful series like Squid Game, you know, that could have been a John Carpenter film in a way from the 80s. So um, I think Escape from New York could work quite nicely as a streaming service drama. Um, things I'd like to see come back or remastered would be um, Blake Seven. I want to mm-hmm. see a I want to see a Blu-ray release of that. I want to see the BBC do a, 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 a restore. Current being shown on Forces Television here in the UK. But probably the old standard definition versions, which is worth seeing if you haven't seen Blake Seven. Have a look see. And I'm a big fan of Sapphire and Steel as well from ICV. Um, that was ICV's version of Doctor Who that never was. 
Um, but that's terrific. I mean, I think that was only one series, though. David McCallum and... Uh, pretty sure. Pretty sure they might have done two. Was it two? I've got the box set from Network DVD, but um, that, that's great. And of course, there's tons of Harryhausen unmade stuff. From my Harryhausen The Lost Movies book, there's the official sequel to Clash of the Titans, Force of the Trojans, and uh, something I was actually involved with developing there a couple of years ago. So I think there's lots of potential. Lots of people have spoken to me about things either based on my old work or projects I've worked on, including Harryhausen stuff as well. But um, it, it's been very difficult for people to keep things um, alive. I mean, it's a bit like holding a melted ice cream in the summer. You know, it looks very attractive, but as soon as you get close to it, it all liquefies in your hand. It's a real mess. And that's how the film industry is at the moment. And streaming services have, have been a big disruptor in the market. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just That's just an observation. I've benefited from streaming services with my content. I've put old content onto a new service and made new money from it. So I think if you're if you're flexible, then then always be available to change. You know, if the opportunity comes along, try and say yes to most things if if that's practical. But that's that's what I say. That's what I say to people. I, I know. You know, just try just try and say yes to everything. You never know what will happen. <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, it's. <clears throat> you know, I am, um, I'm a great believer in, in sort of seizing opportunities. Don't think too much about them, you know, regret what you have done, not what you haven't done. Um, because it's, it's, it's a much, um, it's a much more bitter regret if you think, oh, I should have done that because look, they gave it to John Walsh. Now look at him. He's an international best-selling author. So, um, look, I never expected this to happen when lockdown happens. My first book was released in October 19. So by the March 20, we were in proper lockdown. And that's when I did Flash, Escape from New York and two more books. So in a way, I suspect had that not happened, those opportunities might, might not have presented themselves in that way to me at that time. So who knows? You know, so um embrace change yeah yeah just go go with the flow as a as, as people always used to say to me when when i was a particularly difficult teenage and 20 something <laughs> although people say that i say go with the flow i try and control everything around me at the same time so <laughs> um anyway john it's been wonderful speaking to you again um you know i hope we've covered um as, as much as you as, as you'd, you'd like to have talked about and you know if not we can always come back again when the next books come out absolutely i'd love to come back so probably march time when i'm allowed to talk about the first one comes out this year and uh and yeah who'd have thought five books in um i, I never imagined that i'd be five books in just after 2019 so um where's the time gone i have no idea i'll, I'll be back in march if i may and hopefully if lockdown ends um you know properly and you're able to get out you know to, to a convention in manchester because i think they do one in manchester now sort of a comic con um you know hopefully you can get out and see you then I, i'd love to and, and we're doing lots of new stuff with the harryhausen foundation we have a new ray harryhausen film award that we've launched this year and the first recipients of those will be un- unveiled in uh, in june this year so um it's going to be every june which was ray's birthday so every june we're going to be announcing the harryhausen awards so that's going to keep me busy as well. Well, it's been great having you on again. And, um, you know, it's always a pleasure to speak, speak with you. And um, look forward to, you know, reading that new book and uh, and meeting you, meeting up with you sometime. Something I hope so. Happen. I hope so. It'll happen this year, I'm sure. But have a good rest of the day, Ian. Take care. You too.